Hey, heads up. We have some adult words in this episode. Just a few. But I'm just going to riff here so you can change what you're listening to in case you have kids in the room. Maybe remind you to subscribe to our newsletter. Follow us on Instagram. Okay, here's the show. I keep having this identical conversation. I'll be talking with someone about the future, and then either me or the friend will make this dark joke and say something like, if Miami isn't underwater by then, or if we still have a Supreme Court. It even happened on this very show a few episodes ago when I asked a dad if he'd like to play the song Baby Shark when he DJs his son's wedding. Oh, I would love that. I would absolutely love it. You know, if music still exists. You know, if there's still ceremonies and playing music on speakers. I don't know what they'll be doing by then. But I mean, everyone will be like, what's a shark? Well, we'll be, you know, the ice caps will have melted. We'll be <laughs> underwater by then. So. I think for a lot of us, the future is feeling more uncertain than at any other point in our lives, which is why it's helpful to know a good futurist, like my friend Rose. I think it's really important to have conversations about the future for a couple of reasons. Like one is that it's happening to all of us. And I think people like to kind of throw their hands up and be like, "Ah, I have no power here. But in fact, you do. The future I'm used to hearing about usually comes from a man giving a TED Talk, probably in a turtleneck. And he'll describe a future designed by Silicon Valley billionaires with self-driving cars, bottles of beige soylent, and rich people visiting the moon for fun. And then there's the future Rose is imagining for the rest of us, for women and families and babies. A future with advanced prosthetic limbs for kids, high-speed trains for visiting grandma, and genetic engineering to bring back ancient foods. If you know the right questions to ask and if you know kind of how to think about the future, it can actually make the world a better place, which sounds super cheesy, but I think is true. <laughs> yeah, like futurism matters. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Andre Salenzi. Today on the show, the future of family and human reproduction. We'll talk space babies and babies born in pods and whether or not you let a robot give your dad a bath. Instead of just going down the usual dark joke spiral, today's show is going to ask questions about how to make the future for families even more equitable, fun, and interesting. Because talking about the future you want to live in is a way better way to help shape it than just freaking out and gnashing your teeth all day. Our guide for this journey is Rose Ebleth. I cover the future broadly. I sometimes call myself a futures critic, like there are food critics and movie critics, and I like critique futures. And... You're my old roommate. Oh, yes, that's true. That's true. I have no idea why living in Bushbook with me and surviving bed bugs together isn't top of her resume. But Rose's qualifications here, they go beyond our friendship. For her podcast, Flash Forward, she's interviewed over 300 scientists about the future. Each episode of her show begins with a hypothetical future, like this week. Wow. wow. Where actors performed a scene from a hypothetical future where you can swap bodies with another person. Wait, do you have to buy all new clothes now? Actually, this is funny, but the company I use includes the person's closet with the swap. So I inherited all this stuff I'm wearing. That's so smart. You look great. So I wanted to try improvising a hypothetical future with Rose. So close your eyes. Okay. It's 30 years in the future. We're in our mid-60s. Okay. And we're walking down a beach together Jackie, cue the the waves. 
We obviously still have dogs. Definitely. Let's just pretend it's our same dogs. Yeah, they're never going to die. Jackie, cue our dogs. They're like barking and playing. Oh, wow. Our dogs are, are really good friends. Oh, I'm so glad that they get along now. I'm so glad we were able to clone them both. I'm never going to have to train another dog. Just continue on. Wait, are beaches real still? Do we still have oh, yeah. beaches? Yeah, yeah, Beaches have expanded because of climate change. Got more and more shorefront. Maybe we're like in Ohio on the beach. <laughs> and uh, we're talking. What are we talking about? Maybe we're talking about the brand new facility that opened in Boise, Idaho, potentially, that allows people to incubate fetuses outside of their own bodies. So artificial wombs, right? You can rent some space. You don't have to actually use your you know, human meat sack to carry a, a fetus to term for nine months. You can just kind of give it the bundle of cells and let the incubator do its thing and then pick pick it up later would you i want to do it you'd want in yeah but like isn't it weird to just like pick it's not like groceries you're not like picking up groceries it's like a baby don't you like want some more connection to it this could be a way my way to have a kid in my 60s that's true for sure for sure i don't know it seems kind of like matrixy like you know where you go and there's like pods and the baby comes out of the pod i don't know and you have to wonder what these babies are missing out on So, Rose, you did an episode all about artificial wombs, and it begins with, you can hear someone calling up the facility. Let's listen to that. Hello, you've reached Stavia, the womb away from home. Para Español, Aprima Dos. If you're calling to speak with a certified womb specialist, please press 1. If you're calling to apply for womb space, please press 2. If you're calling to check on the status of your baby, please press 3. Please enter your baby's seven-digit womb code now, followed by the pound key. If you would like to leave a message for your baby, please press 1. If you would like to hear what your baby is listening to now, please press 2. This is what your baby is currently hearing. To change the soundtrack, press 3 at any time. Okay, so tell me what an artificial womb would be. What, what is the plan? This is something that sci-fi has thought about for a really long time and also, you know, something that a lot of researchers are interested in, right? This idea, can you bring any kind of animal to term outside of the body of a parent? So, like, obviously there are some liberatory aspects to that in that, like, you know, one of the big things that you've covered a lot on the show is, like, the ways that parents are, particularly mothers, are penalized for taking time off for actually like literally physically birthing a baby. I mean, it's a very traumatic process and it's high risk, right? Especially in the United States, especially for black women. Like there's lots of ways that this intersects with class and race and inequality. But if those things could be removed, if you could get your genetic material together, put it into a little bundle, send it off to your nice little facility, have it grow and then come pick it up later, you know, we'd never have to leave the workforce. You could just work forever. You could be the perfect efficient worker because capitalism, that's what it wants. Right. And you could just sort of potentially solve some of those problems. And this could help gay fathers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's another, you know, thing they say is like, okay, it could be, you know, at people who are currently maybe using surrogates. And that's obviously a very complicated ethical question of like using someone else's body for something, you could cut that out of the equation, right? You could have this be done in a facility where there isn't someone's literal human body sort of on the line. That future might be sooner than we'd all think. Here's a recent video from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It works by two major components. The first one is a circulatory system that goes through an oxygenator. 
Two years ago, some researchers did some work on a lamb fetus in an artif- quote-unquote artificial womb. It's not really an artificial womb. It's like sort of a glorified plastic baggie. And then the other component is a fluid environment that surrounds the fetus and allows the fetus to swallow and breathe amniotic fluid like it's supposed to during development. They call it a bio bag, and it's transparent. You can look inside and see the little lamb breathing amniotic fluid. So they were premature lambs. So the, these were lambs that had mostly gestated within a mommy sheep and then were sort of removed as in, as like a premature baby, basically, a premature lamb. What about this? Isn't there a chance that maybe an artificial womb could do a better job than my womb? And I'm thinking about, you know, like when you when you hatched a baby chick in second grade, you know, a nested chick, the mom could get distracted, you know, the mommy could be caught by a mean old fox. But like if you're incubating a, an egg, right. it has like consistent good right. heat temperature on it. Yeah. I think that the question is what is better, right? Like in some ways you have a higher higher viability, higher chance of those chicks hatching. But do we know, and I don't think we do, is there something fundamentally missing from those chicks? And I don't know that we know that. Okay, so artificial wombs, who wins, who loses? Queer couples win. I think there's a win for folks who might be tempted to be surrogates for financial reasons. You know, people who can't have babies for whatever reason, right, and want a baby. I think that's great. Who loses? If this is coupled with things like genetic editing, I think disabled folks lose because then they become further marginalized because it's like, oh, we are going to try to eradicate you. There is a possibility that it becomes sort of a signal of wealth that you don't have to put your body through pregnancy, which sort of changes your body and you get stretch marks and you get like all these things and your boobs sag a little bit because you're whatever. And that could be like a future where, you know, rich people don't do that. Only poor people have bodies that look like they've you know, oh, through no. pregnancy. <laughs> I'm seeing the handmaid's tale. Right, exactly. Or, right. or like there, uh, there's also a parallel with wet nurses, right? Where the hired help is the one doing the breastfeeding. Right. So it's like, you know, how much can you outsource in terms of like literally labor, but also like, you know, the idea of labor when it comes to having a, a baby? Okay, we're back on the beach. <laughs> okay. I like your shirt. Oh, thank you. I, uh, I made it myself. Out of, uh, nope, I don't know what I'm going to say. I'm not good at improv. <laughs> <laughs> what do shirts look like in the future? What do shirts look like? Maybe they're, like, holographic. Ooh, I like your, um, holograph tea. Thank you. I'm using it to signal that I am uninterested in conversation with anyone but you. So no one should come up to us on the beach. That's what I want in the future. I want, like, a shirt that says, like, don't talk to me. <laughs> did you see that, um, headline about the first space pregnancy? Ooh, I did, and I am worried about that baby. Why? Well, space is very dangerous. In a bit, we'll hear why that first space baby will probably go against all of NASA's recommendations. We still have a NASA. Will we still have a NASA? Ooh, yes. Stay with us. We're back with Futures critic Rose Ebleth. And where we left off, Rose and I were talking about what it would mean to have the very first human pregnancy in outer space. Here's a little bit of what that future might sound like. Here, the astronauts interacting with an automated medical testing device. Good morning, Sarah. How are you feeling? 
That doesn't sound so good, eh? Please insert your hand into the medical analyzer. Thank you. My diagnostics indicate that you may be pregnant. What can you tell me about pregnancy in space? Unfortunately, very little. It's, first of all, unclear if it's possible for humans to get pregnant in space. So there is some evidence in mice that the thing that makes your fertilized egg able to implant just doesn't work when in space. And that's because probably because of the low gravity and or the radiation. They don't really know why. Um, but they do know that small rodents that they send into space don't tend to get pregnant because they seem to not be able to. So it's unclear if humans could possibly get pregnant in space. Obviously, I mean, it's hard enough to get pregnant not in space. <laughs> yeah. So I just feel like... The lady mice in that space station study, some of them just stopped ovulating. And some, they got pregnant, but then the structure in the ovary called the corpus luteum never formed. The corpus luteum maintains pregnancy hormones until there's a placenta. To date, there hasn't been a successful start-to-finish mammalian pregnancy in space. Only in the movies. Like in this one from two years ago called The Space Between Us. The heart will simply not have the strength in the Earth's gravity. Bones will be brittle. He wouldn't even survive the trip back to Earth. Wait, wait, wait. Can I ask really quick? Yeah. Do we think people have had sex in space? 100% yes. So officially the line is they have not. However, there were two astronauts who went to space who were secretly dating. And then when they got back from space, got married. They absolutely had sex in space. They claim they did not, but, like, come on. Yeah. Right? There's no universe in which they did not have But then sex they won't tell space. anyone if it worked or no, not? No, because they, they get, they're super against the rules. They're not allowed to. I, maybe when they both, like, retire and are really old, they'll be like, hell yeah, we fucked in space. <laughs> Were there other people on that ship? Yeah. That's so dangerous with the fluids and everything. Yeah, well, that's part of why you're not supposed to. But, like, can you imagine, like, you've trained your whole life for, like, going into space, and you're, like, a scientist, you're super curious, like, you want to know what this is like. I cannot imagine not wanting to know what it's like to have sex in space. And you're up there with someone who you've probably had sex with already because you were, you know, dating before, they secretly were dating before they went into space. There is now a rule, at least via NASA, uh, I'm not sure if, like, other space stations have this rule, but there's a rule at NASA that, like, no couples are allowed uh, together, like, in any space flight or any spacewalk or anything like that. That's why they were planning that all-female fleet. Yeah, as if they aren't going to fuck. <laughs> I loved that. I loved reading all those articles being like, it's probably so that they don't have sex. And I was like, interesting assumptions. <laughs> mm-hmm. These women, you cut the sexual tension with a knife. Yeah, no, I mean, I want to watch that Netflix show. <laughs> so Rose has her theory that space sex has happened. But no one else is saying that. For example, NASA hasn't even studied, at least publicly, if an erection is even possible in space. One former astronaut told Men's Health magazine that he'd sometimes wake up with a morning boner that could, quote-unquote, cut through kryptonite. Not calling an astronaut a liar, but the only thing we know officially is that testosterone levels drop in space and blood pools differently. So kryptonite? Sure, buddy. None of this has stopped Neil deGrasse Tyson from giving advice in this area. If you want to sort of get together, stay together, you need something to like to keep you together during all the normal uh, body movements that would characterize um, having sex in space. So yeah, just just uh, bring a lot of uh, leather belts. 
to keep things strapped down and you'll be just fine. But gravity isn't just an obstacle for having sex. So humans obviously are used to having gravity, and the Earth is pulling us down, basically. And there are many systems in the body that actually rely on gravity to work. So, fun fact. If you go to space, you have to actually set a timer and make sure that you pee on regular intervals because your bladder will never tell you that you have to pee. Because on Earth, the way the bladder works is like it's a little you know balloon. As your urine sort of fills it, there's like stretch receptors in the bladder. And because of gravity, you know the urine pools at the bottom, and then it slowly stretches. And then once it hits a certain stretch, it says like, oh, got to pee. Uh, In space, that doesn't happen because the water doesn't pool at the bottom, right? It's all over your bladder. So by the time you get that, like, oh, I have to pee sensation, you're actually – your bladder is so full that it's actually dangerous for it to, like, be that full. Like, if you have that sensation of have to pee, that means, like, something has gone wrong. You have not followed your protocol. So, like, that's just one example. But there's all sorts of things, and this is part of why they are not sure if – implantation or, you know, fetal growth is going to work in space, right? Because your uterus, much like your bladder, is sort of a thing that sits in your body and is subjected to gravity. And, you know, even with delivery, right, the baby sort of faces a certain way. And at some point, like, I mean, labor is not just gravity. It's not just falling out of your body. But, like, there is a gravitational gravity element. Gravity is helping. Right, gravity yeah. is helping you. Um, and so it's like, you know, even if you could get pregnant, can you deliver in space? You definitely don't want to do a C-section in space because any kind of fluid, especially blood, is like a bad idea, right? It floats all around. You want to keep it contained. There are tons and tons of, you know, training and rules about surgery in space because it's so dangerous to, like, have open wounds in these, you know, conditions. So you probably don't want to try a C-section. Unclear if you can vaginally deliver, right? And, like, this is assuming that everything is going to plan and there's no complications or anything like that. And, again, fluids. Right. Fluids everywhere. Also, you know, like— astronauts have to do a ton of exercise while they're on, you know, the space station to make sure that their bodies don't just, like, atrophy and their their muscles don't get weird and their bones don't get weak. And those conditions are obviously impacting the human's body. And it's unclear what they might do to, like, a developing fetus, right? Does the fetus develop muscles in the same way that we develop muscles, right? We develop muscles because we have tension on those muscles and that some of that tension is provided by gravity, you know? And so there's just so many open questions about what that would look like. Oh, my God. Morning sickness in space? Yeah, terrible. Right. No, it's like there's so many things where and it's you like— you only eat space food? Right, exactly. You want, you want a pickle and there's no pickles. <laughs> you know, exactly. The other thing to think about is radiation. So being in space subjects you to radiation. And so radiation is everywhere in space. And the Earth's sort of atmosphere and ionosphere keep us safe from that radiation so we can walk around and it's not a problem. But even, you know, commercial airline pilots have to worry about how much radiation they get from just going up and down. We don't know what radiation might do to a fetus. I mean, radiation is, in certain cases, what causes cancer, right? So it makes your cells mutate. So we don't actually know if that means that, like, fetal cells will develop normally. Will the cells divide the right way? We have no idea. But didn't Jeff Bezos just say that we're going to have this whole future world and we we need to start repopulating it? Yeah. If we're out in the solar system, we can have a trillion humans in the solar system, which means we'd have a thousand Mozarts and a thousand Einsteins. This would be an incredible civilization. The idea is, like, we would create colonies, right? The idea, long-term, is that, like, we would live for multiple generations in a place, like on Mars or on the moon or, you know, even in a space station, right, or or in a spaceship. That is kind of the, like, goal of a lot of these programs. But, like, as far as I understand, none of them have really addressed this problem, (laughs) Uh, which seems important to me personally. Especially if your, like, whole pitch is, like, we're going to, colonize, like truly colonize. And, and I think that word isn't like used unironically by the people who are using it, but is worth like noting that it is like literally a colonization in the way that like settlers colonize a place. If we're going to do that, 
you need to be able to make more babies. <laughs> and if you can't, like, that plan has gone wrong. <laughs> Although Matt Damon made the farming look easy. That's Potato babies. Potato babies, yeah. <laughs> you just pee on them. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. I got to figure out how to grow four years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Also, we're back on the beach. Okay. How are your folks? Uh, well, um, the uh, the robots are taking good care of them. It took me a while to come around to the robots, but I actually really like them now. It's kind of nice you don't have to be there. It is nice. And, like, actually the robots are, like, pretty good now. They're less creepy. They've made them more, like, not human, but just less scary, Terminator-y. It's great I can see the, the playlist my dad's listening to. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah, no, my dad got in a fight uh, with the robot recently about whether the song it was playing was from the original Rush live album or the more recent Rush live album. And it was a whole thing. I got a phone call. He was very angry, asked me if I could uh, address it with the robot. And I told him that I did, but I definitely didn't. <laughs> so you made a version of this for your show Flash Forward. Let's listen. Come on, Dad. This is a great place. It's state of the art. Watch this. You didn't tell me there'd be robots. Do not worry, Marcus. Many of our residents are skeptical at first, but I promise we will become friends. I can play any song you like, and any game you can think of. I even know a few jokes. Would you like to hear a joke? Sure. What is worse than biting into an apple and finding a worm? Biting into an apple and finding half a worm. Ha, 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 yes. <laughs> That's my favorite joke. Yes, I know. So this is the future of senior care, which is going to be a massively growing industry in our lifetimes. Um, you know, people call it the, the gray, gray dawn, the aging tsunami. This is the stat that freaked me out. In the U.S. right now, there are 6 million people over the age of 65. By 2050, so around the time of our beach walk, that number is going to jump to 19 million. Yeah. So 6 million to 19 million. Yeah, right. And like senior care already has a shortage of people working in it. It's a very demanding job. It's a very difficult job. It requires experience and it doesn't pay very well. And so we already have sort of a shortage of care workers in that space. And then, you know, we have all these companies saying like, okay, we're going to solve this problem with technology. We're going to solve it with apps. We're going to solve it with robots. We're going to solve it with, you know, machine learning and, you know, all of these sorts of things. And I think that there will absolutely be robots in senior care in the future. The question is, like, how much, A, how much are we willing to seed? Like, how much are we comfortable with sort of, like, handing, you know, our parents or ourselves over to robots? Um, right. Robot sponge baths are very different than robots reminding you to take your pills. Right. Exactly. Right. And, like, you know, when you ask – so there are some studies that have asked seniors what they think and, like, what they want. I think there's a sort of general idea that, like, people – older people hate robots. They just don't like them. They wouldn't want them. They're, like, technophobic. And that actually isn't true. No, my grandma loved playing bridge yeah. on her iPad. There you go. Exactly. And like a lot of them, it's not that they don't like the idea of robots at all. What they find in these studies is that they are, A, skeptical that the robot can actually do the thing that it says it can do, which is totally fair because most things do not work. <laughs> right? Please like, install updates. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Thinking about the maintenance of a printer and no, the toner oh cartridge yeah. nightmare. Exactly. So like, you know, and I think like they've seen a lot of, you know, technology not work for them. And then the second one is like, will it do what I actually want it to do? So I think 
think seniors especially are really used to companies coming in and being like, I have fixed your problem for you. And seniors being like, that wasn't really my problem. Like there's a lot of assumptions that get made in these tech companies without ever actually asking any of the people that they're designing for. And that goes for every kind of marginalized group, but also goes for seniors. So I think that the the studies that I've read have said like, well, if the robot can actually do these things, then I'm fine with it. I think our generation will be even more accepting of tech and robots just because we have it so much more in our day-to-day lives. Isn't it proven that robots can improve a senior's mood? Didn't they make those, like, cute little fuzzy pet robots? Yeah. So Japan is kind of the forefront of this because they've sort of had a dominant aging population for longer than we have. In Japan, there are a couple of different devices and systems that help seniors. One of them is a seal, a little seal robot that you've seen. Paro is a therapeutic robot developed by ICE and available from Intelligent System Corporation. Yeah, and it it definitely does help. Paro, modeled on a baby harp seal, displays emotional responses to external stimuli, which are input via a range of tactile, light, audio, and temperature sensors. The biggest thing that's that's sort of a challenge for a lot of seniors is loneliness, right? It's not medical stuff. It's not, you know, any of that. It's just they're lonely. Like a lot of their friends have died. Maybe their partners have died. Their family doesn't necessarily visit them as especially, you know, people move away from like more and more people aren't living in the same place that they grew up. So you have these seniors who are often living in facilities. They're living um, by themselves. They're living around other people they don't really know that well. And they're lonely. And so these robots can really help with that. And that's like a huge, huge thing for mental health. And mental health is obviously connected to physical health. And so there's lots of really good evidence that having these kinds of little pets or like toys, you know, there's the Ibo dog, you know, there's all these little things really does help people, not just seniors, but especially seniors. So that's one possible senior care robot, but the others are just kind of like roving ones on a stand? Yeah, so there's there's some robots that are already being used in hospitals right now, and they're not, they don't replace nurses. Nurses have a very important job, but like they kind of come in and like check on medication. They can sometimes deliver news from a doctor if the doctor can't be in the room at that time. That's sort of controversial. There was a case, I think it was in San Francisco, where an app, basically an iPad on a stick on wheels, like rolled into a, a man's room and the doctor showed up on the screen and basically told the man that he was going to die. And his family was like, you could have showed up in person for this. You know, they were very upset about it. Fair, I think it's just fair. You know, I don't know if he's going to get home. Okay. I can order some morphine. Is that what you want? Uh, he said yes. They thought it was just a routine visit from this little bot, you know, and then all of a sudden it was like, no, you're dying. There's nothing we can do for you. And they were very unhappy about that. And then it says, please install an update. Right. You're like, please plug me in. I'm out of battery. <laughs> System update. Um, there's all sorts of stuff. Well, you know what I want to ask. Yeah. Will the robots also have sex with grandpa? Yeah. I mean, if grandpa wants it, I think they're pretty good about consent. But yeah. Yeah, probably. I mean, one thing, there's a woman named Ashton Applewhite who uh, is an anti-ageism activist. And she talks a lot about, like, it's important to recognize that, like, seniors want to have sex. And, like, they should be totally allowed to because they're, like, human beings. And if, like, a robot makes them feel better about that and they, like, feel less self-conscious and it works for them, why not? Can you picture yourself in the future getting a bath from your robot boyfriend and you're like, I used to have a podcast and I knew that this would happen. <laughs> Excuse me. Hello. Yes. Uh, I called this. <laughs> yeah. The ultimate okay, I told Rose. you so. Yeah. Right. Where he's like, yes, I know you tell me every time. <laughs> How can I give you pleasure? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. That's my future. Yeah. I believe it. In a bit. Producer Jackie, I am going to need a timer sound. 
because I'm going to ask Rose if she's ready to do a future speed round with me. Okay. Will we have the internet? Will we have whales? Rose has thoughts. Stay with us. Can you say advertisements? Advertisements. <laughs> And we're back. And as promised, it is time for a speed round. Okay, this is all I ever want to do with Rose. Ask her a million questions about the future. Here we go. The water supply. Ooh, bad. Will we actually cook dinner for our kids? Ooh, no. Tablets? Soylent? Robots will cook dinner for our kids. Birth control? Yes. Will it be better? No. Will we have it for men? No. <laughs> Abortion, will we have it? Ooh, maybe. Postal service, will we still get mail? Yes. Good. Yeah. So we can still write to Santa. Yeah. But he's no longer wearing the furry suit? Mm, yeah. I mean, I think he, maybe he's got a Hawaiian shirt on now because it's like tropical at the North Pole. Drive cars. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, self-driving cars are kind of like male birth control where it's like they're always like right around the corner and are way harder than anyone wants to admit. So we're, we're still picking up kids in our minivans yes. from soccer practice. Yep. Soccer? I hope so. Will we still have cell phones? No. What will it be? There'll be a lot more wearable stuff. So it'll be like distributed across more little devices, I think. Did you just tell me an Apple Watch is the future? Unfortunately. Are we still going to have pets? Ooh, I hope yes. We will, we will have fewer types of pets in the future. Whales? Some whales, yes. Most whales, no. The ocean? The ocean's going to get bigger. Yeah, we're going to have lots and lots more ocean. It'll get bigger and, like, emptier, but, yeah. What are we going to think family means? Ooh, I think family becomes less biological in the future. I think family becomes more of a chosen family and looks a lot more diverse and varied. I think family could be, I mean, one thing we didn't talk about with the artificial womb thing is, like, you could have four parents and you could use genetics to, like, combine the genes of four people as opposed to two. And then you could have four parents or something like that. So I think we're going to see family, the idea of family sort of expand in a really, like, inclusive and lovely way where it's, like, kind of like, partially choose who your family is and they don't look like you know platonic like mom and dad and kids and white picket fence and dog it's like much more diverse and varied and cool talking to rose made me realize i might already be an optimist about the future like take this podcast with every episode i get to see the ways family is already changing and from here the future looks bright Even if in the future, I'll still be stuck trying to answer. So what's a podcast? Like a radio show, but on the internet, neither of which exist anymore. <laughs> eh, we'll be too busy with our sex robots anyway. Everything should always end on robot sex. This episode was produced by me, Andres Lenzi, with Jackie Sajiko. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. Hillary's new book, Weird Parenting Wins, is out now. Go get a copy. We have a couple signed ones at podswag.com slash LST. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Akatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. This marks the end of our season, end of season two. We're going to be back in four weeks with more episodes. 
including one about what climate change means for parents and people thinking about becoming a parent. It's hard to talk about apocalypse and birth, but, you know, they're intertwined. (laughs) If you like today's show, you're going to like that one. Be sure to subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want to hear your stories about sperm. You donated, you used a donor, you asked a friend. Tell me everything. Just me, not, not even for the show. Okay, it's also for the show. Fine. Tell us. Go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the participate tab, and submit your story. Stitcher!